0: All right, guys, if you would, please, if you have a Bible, turn with us to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you know that we are studying the book of 1 Timothy. It was written by the apostle Paul to his apprentice, to his apprentice Timothy to encourage and also to instruct him to address problems in the church in a city called Ephesus. And Paul's goal is to set things in order so that the church Might continue to grow and to thrive. Now, think of Paul as essentially here as pruning a tree. We prune trees so that they uh, grow stronger and more fruitful, even though it means sometimes that branches need to be cut off. Paul's aware of the dangers of an unhealthy church here, and so he gives Timothy instructions on how to prune the branches, essentially. Now, this week, Paul addresses the need for strong leaders in the church. Now, pause for a second. If that's not you, if you're not a pastor, if you're not a deacon, and you have no desire ever to be those things in life, what I want you to do right now is not follow that instinct to simply flip the switch off in your brain and say, this week's not for me. As a matter of fact, I believe this message is for anyone who desires to follow Jesus. It's a sermon for everybody. Now, I mentioned this idea briefly last week. But I want us to think about this idea again. What are you known for? How would your friends, your family, your spouse maybe describe you? Would they say you're quiet or loud? Funny or serious? Shy or outgoing? All these things look at the idea, what Paul wants to do this week, is look at the idea of how we are known. Now, before we get into it, let me tell you a little story about you may have heard before in school. Let me tell you about a guy named Alfred Nobel. He was an inventor and a businessman. In a lot of ways, he was kind of like the 19th century version of Tony Stark. And He had hundreds of patents in his lifetime. You may not know all of his inventions, but you probably know one of them really, really well, dynamite. Uh, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. Now, Alf- Now, dynamite wasn't essentially used for blowing people up. It was used for Uh, civilian kind of activities. As a matter of fact, one of the names he had for dynamite originally was Nobel's Safety Powder, which, if I'm honest, doesn't sound like a great description of dynamite, if you ask me. Now, alongside this, he also created explosives for for the military as well. Now, flash forward a little bit. One day in 1888, Alfred's brother died And as a result, a French newspaper mistakenly thought it was him and printed his obituary while the man was still alive. So imagine getting a newspaper one day and finding your own name in the obituaries. In it, what they did is they essentially condemned him for all that he did, for being a person who simply made weapons of mass destruction as they would have been thought of in that time. The obituary contained this line describing him, the merchant of death is dead. Now, this false obituary struck Alfred really hard. He realized that if he were to die at that moment, that's how people would think of him, simply the merchant of death. And so, not wanting to be remembered this way, what he did is Alfred set aside in his will, he had no kids or anything, so he set aside the bulk of his estate to the establishment of annual awards given in several categories, things like chemistry and literature and physics. However... One category might stand out as unique here, peace. Thus, the Nobel Peace Prize was created. Now, why did he do this? Well, because he wanted to change the way he was remembered. He wanted to change the thing that he was known for. So with that in mind, guys, the big idea I have for you this week is this. We, that is Christians, should be known by our virtues and not our acclaim. Let me say that again. If you take away nothing else from this week, I want you to remember this. We should be known by our virtues and not our acclaim. So, if you would, please follow along with me for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, which reads, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their house, their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Now, Paul begins with this statement. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I want to draw your attention to the phrase, if anyone aspires to. Now, what I want to make clear here is that Paul is not throwing out criteria that only a few people themselves Uh, should apply to. Basically, if we look at this list of characteristics or virtues here, it's not simply for the cream of the spiritual crop. And the reason I point this out is because if not, what you're going to do is turn your brains off and say, well, I'm not a leader, none of this applies to me. Not the case. See, there's a real danger if we think that Christian character is basically like playing a professional sport. We think to ourselves, sure, this guy can do it, but i would never be able of ca- uh, be capable of playing that game professionally this is the way we kind of reason with spirituality too but here's the thing guys christianity is not like that it's not something that just a few gifted people can do and the rest of us are left to simply sit by on the sidelines instead god is calling everyone who trusts in jesus for salvation to be a part of the work that he is doing in our world. Now, if you were with us last week, you might think that I'm changing my tune here a little bit. Last week I taught that certain roles are specific to certain sexes. Specifically, I said the office of elder or overseer or pastor, as you might call it, basically the chief position of leadership in the local church, was limited to men. By the way, if this statement I just made is shocking to you, feel free to go back and listen to last week's sermon. It's all online. But, I, but am I now changing my position by saying that what Paul says here applies to everyone? Not at all. Why? Because I'm not talking about the position itself here, but rather the qualifications for the position as being something all Christians should strive for. See, one of the things scholars have noted about this list of characteristics we see here or virtues that Paul holds up is that most of them, actually all of them, except for under an understanding of the gospel, were generally accepted virtues in the Greco-Roman culture that Paul himself lived during. As a matter of fact, most of these virtues are still valued today. As a matter, of, in fact, so this isn't Paul holding up some impossibly perfect standard here. People still aren't keen on angry, greedy, violent drunks anymore nowadays either. Now, does that mean everyone is going to be an elder or a deacon? No, but I can't imagine a better dilemma for a church than to have too many people who are qualified for this office. Guys, if there's one problem I think would be great for us to have is when trying to pick more elders, more deacons, we go, man, there's nothing but a bunch of great dudes here to pick from. Now, all Christians, regardless of position or gender, should desire these characteristics. Now, note this, guys. Even if you will never hold one of these positions, your life will still be better by aiming to have these virtues in your life. So whether you never hold a position of leadership in a church, your life will still be better by aspiring to these characteristics. By aspiring to these virtues. Now, Paul does lay out two offices here. Those are the office of overseers, or you'll also hear me refer to this as the office of elder or pastor. We use these words interchangeably, and also deacons. Let's talk about these for a second, guys. What do they mean? How are they similar, and how are they different from each other? Well, to understand this, you have to understand the way Christian ministry is described in the Bible. Ministry is just another word for service so when we talk about Christian ministry don't think of like you know high church kind of things think about the idea of Christian service so all Christian service or Christian ministry can essentially be divided into two categories those of word and those of deed and in other word, in other words all Christian ministry consists in what you say and what you do both of these services are necessary but Also, neither is completely separated from each other. So there should be some overlap here, a lot of overlap between ministries of word and ministries of deed. A person who only says good things but doesn't actually live by them, we call that person a hypocrite. Likewise, a person who does good things but has no reason for why they do them is essentially living a meaningless existence. Now, healthy ministry, what I want to show here... Therefore, should involve both the right words, but also the right actions to go with it. And for that reason, the Bible acknowledges two offices of leadership in the church that focus on each work especially without excluding the other. So, elders need deacons, deacons need elders, and the church as a whole needs both in order to accomplish their God-given purpose in life. So, Paul outlines the sort of character that a leader possesses here, uh, specifically a, a leader should possess in the church. Now, on top of that, remember, there were already leaders in place in Ephesus who were just bad ones. They didn't do the things we were supposed to be doing here. So what he's doing is also drawing a contrast between the false leaders in Ephesus and then also what real leadership actually looks like. So what does a good leader look like? Well, Basically, calm, controlled, honest, rational, welcoming. These are some of the big ones. And I could break each of these ones down for you and tell you what the word means. But to be honest with you guys, most of, things, of these things are so universally recognized as being the kind of traits of, of someone who's just a good person, just a good dude, is they would almost be redundant. Calm people are calm. Controlled people are controlled. It explains itself. Rather, what I want to do this morning is focus on two specific aspects that we find here, that we find are characteristics or virtues of a leader, specifically experience and reputation. First, let's talk about experience. So, of the elders, we read in verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Likewise for deacons, we read this in verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. So what do we see here? Well, first, we see that the home is a good sign of someone's leadership. Paul's idea is simple here. If you can't manage a family, you can't manage a church, because church is really just a bigger version of family. It, it, and so, life itself functions as a proving ground, as a matter of fact. There's no substitute for actual life experience. You see, character isn't always something you choose to do. We like to think that every time we're faced with a dilemma, we think about it, weigh the options, and do what we think is right. But the honest truth is, a lot of actual character, a lot of actual virtue is almost subconscious. You simply know how to do it at times without even thinking about it. Um, Life experience is a lot like muscle memory when learning an instrument. After a while, you've played the same chords, hit the same notes long enough, that you don't have to stop and think to yourself, going to hit a G now, going to play a D. Clearly, I don't know how to uh, play a guitar. By the way, I'm doing these gestures with my hands. Anyways, point is experience trains us to act virtuous subconsciously. It trains our minds to be virtuous. Also notice the change in verse 5 from manage to care. So, Let me read it for you. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, this lets us know what sort of manager a leader in the church is supposed to be. If you've ever worked for someone else, then you've probably had both good and bad experiences with having a boss at some point in time. So just so we don't read into this description what your bad experience with a manager was, Paul adds these words. He adds the word care here to help understand what he means. See, management of God's household or management of your own household uh, that doesn't show compassion for the people you have trusted in your care, guys, it isn't biblical leadership. Now, Paul also warns about putting inexperienced Christians into a position of leadership too quickly. So in verse 6, he writes that an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, I've seen this happen before, guys, personally. Basically, what uh, this is a scenario, if you've been a part of church and you've been a part of ministry in church long enough, you've seen this probably work out. Someone who everyone already likes, he's just the natural love do, guy that everybody loves, comes to faith. And because... This person is one of those people that everybody likes. They're quickly asked to serve in leadership. But see, the problem is walking by faith is really a lot like getting your sea legs. Experience allows you to keep calm even when the situation around you is anything but calm because you get used to it. So you take somebody who's really nice, really likable, just became a Christian. You're like, this guy's awesome. He's going, to be, he's going to be super uh, beneficial to our ministry. You give him a position of leadership too soon, and as a result, what ha- ends up happening is they get burnt out really, really quickly. You guys, I've seen it too many times. So don't be too quick to call someone a leader. So then how do we actually do this? How do we move anyone naturally into positions of leadership? See, I, I believe 100%. That the Bible calls us to train up leaders. I think make disciples implies training people to be leaders. And in order for the church to survive, new leaders have to be developed. New leaders have to be trained. So how do we do that? Easy. We test their faithfulness. Uh, He says, Paul says in verse 10, And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So, a little bit about myself guys. I am probably I'm guessing not the oldest pastor anyone who's watching this has had. Maybe for some, I like to think I'm even the youngest. Who knows? Maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. But one of the things I am most thankful for in my journey to becoming a pastor is this. Basically, this isn't my first job in Christian ministry. It's not my first role in Christian ministry either. Uh, Before this, I was a youth pastor, before that I was a kids minister, and before that I was about a million different Sunday school teachers, uh, men's ministry leaders, and any any other volunteer position in, in the church in between. And I'm so thankful for this process, because really what happened is these smaller responsibilities prepared me for the greater responsibility I now have. It doesn't surprise me then when I see people and hear about someone burnt out in a church because they were uh, put in a prominent position that, frankly, they weren't prepared, they weren't ready for. So by not allowing me to move ahead too quickly in leadership, I 100% believe this was God protecting me and guiding me in this whole process. Now, this is something we want to consider as a church. Are we providing ways to get people experience? See, we want to create smaller... We want the path to to leadership development to be a whole bunch of baby steps. Uh, We want to give smaller responsibilities and greater responsibilities as people prove themselves. And as a result, what I believe what we'll see is that more leaders develop in our church. Uh, As silly as it might sound, guys, the first rule in getting experience is get some experience. So, experience matters. Second... I want to talk about reputation, guys. Look at verse 7. Moreover, he, that is the overseer or elder, must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So what I want you to understand is that a Christian's leader's reputation matters, even his reputation with non-Christians. Well, why? Well, a couple dangers that essentially... Uh, that um, Paul brings up here that essentially mean the same thing, falling into disgrace and also falling into a snare of the devil. Now, how do these two things go together? Well, because in leadership, the church's reputation as a whole is at stake, and the devil would like nothing more than to simply take down the credibility of God's people. So, if a man leading in a church has a bad name outside of the church, it reflects badly on all all of us. Most importantly, it reflects bo- poorly on the God we represent to the world around us. Now, just notice this idea, guys. You'll see it uh, pretty often. Notice any time a pastor is like brought up on charges for whatever reason, what you're going to find is the media has a field day with it. They will use it not only as a reason to bash that person, but as a reason to bash their church as a whole and often as a reason to bash Christianity as a whole as well. Now, as I say this, my own objection comes to mind, however. I'm saying reputation matters, but I think to myself, what about grace? What about forgiveness? Don't leaders need grace and forgiveness too? Well, absolutely they do, certainly. But there's a danger in mistaking how God sees people, and how people see people. See, when you repent, does God forgive your sins? Absolutely. No questions asked. Does that mean no one else will ever remember the mistakes, the sins you've committed? Not necessarily. See, keep in mind, we're talking about leaders here. A leader who repents should be embraced as a brother in the faith. So even if a pastor or an elder is removed from their position, and they turn from it, they should be accepted back into the community of faith as a brother in Christ. However, to be a leader also requires a proven track record, because experience and reputation go hand in hand. So, just because you remove someone from an office doesn't mean you remove them from the family. There's a proverb that goes like this. Proverb 26.1 says... A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. See, a good reputation is powerful, and it should not be underestimated by any means. See, it's, better, it's a better witness for a church to be able to say that someone was removed from office but not removed from the fellowship, the family of faith. It shows that we're both forgiving, but also that we're not naive and stupid. And so, of course, there's one more issue that I want to kind of, I need to look at regarding this issue of reputation. Basically, that everyone is a sinner. More specifically, that I, myself, am a sinner. Guys, I'm an elder here. Robin's an elder here. I sin daily. Robin sins daily, too. Does that mean that I should be fired and we should both be removed from office? And the honest answer is, it depends. Certain sins, specifically uh, a habit of certain sins, are a sign that something needs to be done. However, if I'm 100% honest with you guys, the Bible doesn't give you this exhausted li- exhaustive list of deal-breaker sins. If you do this one, you're okay. If you do this one, you can't do the office anymore. There's some of those, But there's a lot of reasons for which a pastor or an elder might be removed from an office. Um, It gives some examples, but the Bible ultimately puts the decision on you, the congregation. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why we're Baptists, guys, because we ultimately believe that churches decide who they are willing to follow. Now, when I came here, I was voted in as, as a pastor, that means leaders from within the church, uh, select uh, basically leaders which you selected from within the church, uh, met with me, spoke with me. I spent time with them. I spent time with you guys. And you decided that you were willing to follow my leadership. That means you felt I was the person God had called and equipped to lead this church. Am I perfect? Far from it. But I am committed to growing in my faith. And that includes being willing to admit When I'm wrong and turn from my mistakes. See, this is one of our core convictions we hold as a church. Our changed lives give proof to our message. See, I want all that to be true of all of us. I want all of us to live lives that point people to Jesus and not turn others away from him. All this is to say, guys, reputations matter, and reputations are built on experience. So, why does this all matter so much? Well, Paul goes on to explain that the church is, in verse 15, a pillar and buttress of truth. See, the great danger in an unhealthy church is that the truth of God is maligned. See, you and I don't just exist for ourselves. We are a part of something much grander, much bigger. We are God's representatives to the world, and as such, we want to live in such a way that these truths are well-supported by our lifestyle. So having laid this out, Paul ends this section by quoting what would have been a line from an early church, uh, or an early church hymn. Basically, he's quoting some lyrics here. Verse 16 reads, "Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." And then he gives us the, the lines from the hymn. "He was manifested in the spirit, vindicate, or manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit." seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What does this statement have to do with the virtues of a Christian leader? Well, what I believe Paul's doing here is drawing a connection between the proof of Christ's righteousness or Christ's godliness and what we represent. In, In essence, it motivates us. See, Jesus is great And we exist exist to make his greatness known to the world. Because the hope we have is so great, it should drive us to seek these virtues. What in essence he's saying is that the goodness of the gospel is what will motivate us to virtue. Now, don't miss this. We are not meant to be godly people only for our own benefit, though there's great benefit in godliness but for the sake of the gospel, which has freed us to actually pursue that godliness. See, there are those who think that godliness is a burden, just a set of rules that we have to uphold so that God will approve of us. That's not the case, guys. Jesus Christ has obtained our approval before God, and a life of godliness is the best possible life to live. See, God has freed us from the burden of validating ourselves so that we can experience the joy of living for him. So, I come back to the question, what will you and I be known for? My desire is not that Reconciled Church would be known for amazing music, powerful sermons, or great kids' ministry. All those are good things, guys, but God has simply called us to be known for more than that. I want us to be known for being people who sought to follow God with all that we have. In essence, men and women of virtue. I want us to be known as people who sought to live godly lives, not because we feared God's anger, but because we deeply understood God's grace. So in closing, don't sell yourselves short in life, guys. God has called you to be recognized as one of his people, to uphold the truth and also to live by it. Likewise, God has called those of us who lead to set an example for others to follow. Now, we may live in a time where virtue has fallen by the wayside, but by God's grace, we will reclaim it. Bow your heads, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you have directed us You've not left us to speculate and wonder how we should be as a church. You have laid out the characteristics of leaders. And you say that whoever aspires to these things aspires to a noble task. God, help us to aspire to a noble task this week. God, give us the strength and the discipline to pursue virtue. But also, God, give us us the Ability, the willingness to repent when we mess up. Lord God, we don't do any of this because you want us to prove ourselves to you. Lord, we do all of this because you already approve of us. And you say those, and you want those of us who trust in you to experience the joy you've set apart for us and to be your representatives to the world around us. God, use us for that this week. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.